Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And right now, Thomas Hearns is an open book for Ray Leonard. Backs up against the ropes. This is one of the most unusual calls by a referee in the history of the sport. The first loss. A tremendous victory. Leonard fighting off the ropes. It happened. It happened. Number cut by Douglas. Down goes Tyson. Hooks in. Right hand shot. Fight fans to another episode of Legendary Nights with me, your host Sean Basto. Shortly to be joined, as always, by Johnston Brown for this additional episode to the Legendary Nights feed, and it's celebrating St. Valentine's Day. And what better way to do it by breaking down the sixth and final fight between Sugar Ray Robinson and Jake Lamotta, aptly dubbed the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Before we get into this episode, of course, go and check us out on social media at Legend Night Pod on Twitter and BTR Boxing Podcast Facebook page. If you've not already subscribed to the podcast, you can do so by checking us out on Apple Podcasts or Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, CastBox, TuneIn, any of the available podcasting apps out there. You can search Legendary Nights and you will find all the latest episode and the catalogue of previous episodes out there. So, this is the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. This is Sugar Ray Robinson. Versus Jake Lamar, number six. What a way to spend your St. Valentine's Day by listening to this episode, the tale of Sugar Ray Robinson versus Jake Lamar, the St. Valentine's Day massacre. I'm really excited to do this one, Johnson. This is one that we decided we were going to put in there last minute because it's St. Valentine's Day. It's, it's what's been commercialised as you need to go out there and you need to go and buy your wife box chocolates and all the rest of it. But this is this legendary night. It's the real the real St. Valentine's Day. This is what we want to talk about. Now, obviously, for anybody that doesn't know what the St. Valentine's Day massacre is, of course, it was an incident which involved basically a gang-style execution, which happened, I think it was the late 20s, early 30s, it happened, but this fight in particular was was labelled 
the St. Valentine's Day Massacre because of how brutal it was. And we're going to get into this tale. So, Johnston, what a fight. Great pick. Really excited to do this. And what a way to spend Valentine's Day. Yeah, I couldn't think of any, anything better than maybe sit down with the missus, your wife, whatever it is, you know, get the candles lit and stick this on black and white. It's on ESPN, YouTube. I oh, she love you, mate. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you know, a bit... Bit of blood and guts, but you know, one thing you don't see black and white, you don't really see the blood, unfortunately. Uh, we have to look at or read certain articles. You can see that, you know, I'm not going to give too much away, but a certain fight against his face, absolutely mangled. But mainly, you probably work it out from the film Raging Ball. Maybe stick that on Valentine's Day. That's another good film to watch on Valentine's Day. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a no brainer. Legendary Nights, we had a little gap. Valentine's Day coming up. If it's in Valen, Times Day Massacre is just, it's a great tale and one that um, I'm, I'm looking forward to telling. So, as always, we'll cover the Legendary Nights episode in the format that we do, which is to cover the careers of both men in the lead-up to this particular fight. Bearing in mind they fought five times prior to this sixth and final fight, we'll be touching on some significant fights in the lead-up to this fight. We'll talk a little bit about the build-up, which is always difficult to find out about because of how long ago this fight happened. There's not a lot of footage around there to find. There's only quotes and articles that you can get information from, and we did manage to find a few little nibblies in there to get onto. So we're going to talk about about the build-up to the fight, and then, of course, the fight itself. Uh, an amazing night, really, and an infamous night in so many different ways. So, of course, let's talk about the career of both of these men, because both of these men are legendary fighters in their own right. And starting for me first, we'll start with the Raging Ball, Mr. Jake Lamar. Let's start by talking a little bit about Jake and his career in the lead-up to this sixth and final fight. So, for Jake LaMotta then, everybody knows him as this this fantastic fighter, as he was, and most of the younger generation, you know, people from our era probably only know Jake LaMotta through watching the Robert De Niro film, The Raging Bull, from 1980. But this particular career that he had was, was unbelievable, really, when you look back on it. And we're going to touch on a couple of them fights in the lead-up to the fight with Sugar Ray Robinson, the sixth and final fight. So, his actual career, Jake LaMotta, started in 1941. He actually started during the Second World War, and he wasn't your average fighter. He would go on, and he would win fights, and he would lose fights throughout the course of his career. And when he got to the first fight with Sugar Ray Robinson, which was only a year later after he turned professional, by the way, 1942, October the 2nd, he was 25, 5 and 2, and Sugar Ray Robinson was 35 and 0 at this point. And it happened in Madison Square Gardens. It was a big fight. It was a massive fight at that time because these two were very popular guys at this particular point. And what was interesting about it was that Jake LaMotta was, for the majority of his career, was actually just a full-blown solid middleweight. And he always had the weight advantage over Sugar Ray Robinson. Sugar Ray Robinson is by far the best welterweight that has ever graced the squared circle. Ray Robinson, yet again, as you'll find throughout most of his career when you look back on the history, he moved up a weight because the competition wasn't good enough in his own weight. It's crazy, isn't it? Uh, uh, he, he was a welterweight. He wasn't a champion at the time, obviously. this is It's crazy to think, but 35 and I wasn't even getting a look in. And Jake Lamotta is, you know, he, he's had his losses. He's... Uh, and he's in a situation where he's also a bit feared as well. So he's a feared middleweight. Not many people 
really want to fight Jake or Jack. Some people call him Jack, Jake, however you want to pronounce him. I mean, I'd say Jake the Motta has always been Jake the Motta to me and, and Sugar Ray as well, but both two different weights. And actually, in his first fight, he was actually 10 pounds heavier, Jake the Motta, than, than Sugar Ray Robinson. But it didn't matter one iota because Sugar Ray was quite simply... It was brilliant the night that night as well. It was his hands were it just, it was just too quick with his hands. His footwork was excellent, as as you'd always see with, with Sugar Ray Robinson. He had this fantastic style, and you know when you when you watch him, if you ever get the footage, sort of in these sort of days, the, the one fight we will get, you will get to see on video or on footage online, will, will tend to be the sixth one because you know the, these the footage of these fights just just are not around. So we have to just take what what the guys at ringside have written about it and by the sounds of it is his sugar was just too quick uh, and he took seven of the ten rounds and it was a it was a pretty one-sided fight and considering that sugar Ray was a welterweight and he's fighting a middleweight and you're talking about Jake Lamar who was a very solid he, he could take a shot I mean he probably got one of the most granite chins in boxing history I suppose Marvin Hagler is the only other first the other person I can think of that had a chin like him but uh, the first fight was pretty much all Sugar Ray, considering he was a welterweight. It's pretty, pretty, pretty marvellous, really. He moved on, uh, Lamar, and he got a few more wins under his belt before fighting Sugar Ray for a second time. Yeah, it was weird, wasn't it? Because like the competition is so so sparse at that point in time that Sugar Ray Robinson is having to face Jake Lamotta yet again only four months later on February the 5th, 1943. Now, this fight was a little bit different from the first fight because... Out of the six fights, this was the only one that Jake LaMotta actually picked up the victory on. So, February the 5th, 1943, Sugar Ray Robinson's 40-0, Jake LaMotta, 31-5-2. and two. And the fight was different this time round, because Jake LaMotta, he fought with a lot more tenacity in this fight. And he was cutting off the ring a lot more, and with no pun intended, he was bullying his way on the inside, pounding right hands to the body and left hooks upstairs. And it was in the eighth round that Jake LaMotta put Sugar Ray Robinson down for the first time in his career, sending Sugar Ray Robinson through the ropes. And you might have seen that picture on social media or on the internet or in articles, but it's quite a famous picture because it's the only time really you see Sugar Ray Robinson in his career in real trouble like that. And, and someone managed to get a really good, clear picture of it, which is which is great and historic. So LaMotta took Sugar Ray Robinson all the way. You would have think looking at that picture that that fight would have been over there when he knocked him through the ropes, but Sugar Ray Robinson, absolute legend that he was, got back up and carried on the fight and it went the full distance of 10 rounds and Jake LaMotta picks up the unanimous decision victory over him. So they've got one win for Sugar Ray Robinson, one win for Jake LaMotta and again, going back to what I said at the start there about the competition being so sparse within the welterweight and middleweight divisions at the time that it was only three weeks later they ended up fighting again. Ray, when you get uh, about ready to do a fight, uh, how many hours of training a day do you do? Well, it's uh, the whole day goes to training. In other words, from the time you get up in the morning, there's no canasta or gin rummy or bridge in the afternoon or anything like oh, that? Oh, yes. Uh, that's, uh, that's all helps your mental attitude. You have things of that sort, but uh, you can't break training. No eating ice cream or doing anything like that you shouldn't be doing. What happens to that mental attitude, Ray, when you get in the ring? <laughs> well, <laughs> every man for himself then. Huh? That's right. <laughs> Although I've heard that the best fighter and the best boxer in the world is a guy who has uh, a calm quality about him. Well, that's true too, because once you get away from that, you lose all sense of skill. And it's so it's such a crazy thing because obviously this this fight three weeks later, and they decide to fight. I mean, Sugar Ray Robinson. I, I did read something where 
apparently he was he felt or his team felt that he was a little bit overweight for the second one. So he did take a little uh, fight in between and then he decided to take the rematch, as I say, three weeks later. I think he fought literally a week before as well. So he was obviously trying to get himself in shape, realising that he needs to adjust. And, and, and one thing you all know when you go through Sugar Rain's career is he adjusts so well and it's just devastating in a rematch if he ever loses. And obviously that's your first defeat, 40 you know. So 40, 41, uh, 40-1 going into the Lamotta fight. And Lamotta obviously finally feels like he's got his number. He's, he's managed to cut the ring off. He knows exactly what he's going to bring. And Sugar Ray switches it up once again. And although, once again, Lamotta does put Robertson down in, in the seventh for an eight count, it was another impressive performance from Sugar Ray Robertson, who, who basically just showed how much of a true-class welterweight he was and just, just a class boxer he was in general. And he, and he outclassed Lamotta, unfortunately, on that, on that night in, in Michigan, in Detroit. And he managed to go 41-4. Uh, 41 and 1, sorry. Um, and he didn't lose again for a very long time, Sugar Ray Robinson. And it, it, it was a little while before they just they ended up fighting again. Before they got to that fourth fight between one another, there was another interesting fight on Jake Lamotta's resume, which happened on the 21st of April 1944 against a fighter by the name of Lloyd Marshall. So, Lloyd Marshall was a part of Murderer's Row. Now, I don't know if anybody has ever heard of Murderer's Row. Any boxing historians, of course, will have done, who were basically a set of contenders who were primarily of African-American background, who were famously avoided by a lot of fighters. So, a few names on that list that people may know or may not know of to look out for, go and check them out on Wikipedia or on Google. You've got Charlie Burley, Holman Williams, Herbert Coco Kid Lewis, Jack Chase, Eddie Booker, Aaron Wade, and Bert Lytell. They were the names on Murderer's Row. And that is an interesting concept on its own. And it's something I know we would love to touch on at another point down the line. But Murderer's Row then, Johnston, just put it into context for the listeners a little bit more about Murderer's Row. Well, these guys were basically, they were the most fighters and, and, and during the time obviously segregation was still there and, and black fighters just didn't get the opportunity they just didn't get the chance to fight for world titles and they didn't get the chance to fight the contenders either and there's only a selective few that would actually take them on and I mean just jumping on not don't go too far but the fact that Sugar Ray Robinson is, is well known to never face Charlie Burley and Charlie Burley is still considered to be one of the best ever middleweights that ever lived they just never got a chance. And none of these guys ever got a title shot, ever. And they were magnificent. From what you read, there are certain bits of footage on some of them. Holland Williams is another one. But obviously, Charlie Burley always tends to be the guy that everybody knows. And, you know, these fellas were just unfortunate in the era they were in because if they were around today, these guys would probably be considered to be some of the greatest fighters that ever lived. So it's, it's a sad story, really. And it is it's just really, it just shows you you know, at the times, how dodgy and corrupt everything was, which, uh, which we'll also go on to later on in Jake Lamotta's career as well. So, let's just switch it up a bit for this episode. And as we're going through the chronological timeline of Jake Lamotta, we'll stop it there around about 1944, which is what the defeat to Lloyd Marshall was. And we'll go over to Sugar Ray Robinson's career and, and just touch a little bit on that leading up to the fourth fight with Jake Lamotta. So, obviously, we've covered three of the six fights already about what happened in them and how it all went down 
But for Sugar Ray Robinson, obviously, he's got uh, an unbelievable resume himself, of course. So looking back at his career, one particular name that stands out to me, he fought in 1943, on the 27th of August 1943, was Henry Armstrong, who, again, unbelievable fighter in his, his own right at this time. So Henry Armstrong was 31 at the time, Sugar Ray Robinson went in the ring with him, and Sugar Ray Robinson picked up a unanimous decision over 10 rounds. Now, this actually happened after the third Jake LaMotta fight. That was one name on that record where I thought to myself, wow, another amazing name after Jake LaMotta on the resume of, of Sugar Ray Robinson. So, Sugar Ray Robinson is 45-1 and one at this point in 1943, before we get into the fourth Jake LaMotta fight, but You've got to look at his career, and and we know how it all ended. We know how good of a fighter he was, but then you look at his resume, and you go through some of the names on his resume, and when you get names like Henry Armstrong, again, who was a fantastic, brilliant, legendary fighter in his own right, it starts to tell you a little bit of a tale of how good of a fighter Sugar Ray Robinson was and why people considered him to be the greatest pound-for-pound fighter of all time. People have him in front of Ali. A lot of people do have Ray Robinson in front of Ali, and that's that's why there's reasons behind that. And when you look further into it, you see why. So, at, at the point we get into the fourth fight with Jay Lamar, obviously, then his his resume is really well built up, and he's only had that one defeat to Jay Lamar in the second fight. So you move on and you go into the fourth fight with Jay Lamar, and I think that's where you start to think to yourself, looking back at the resume. Why did these guys end up fighting so many times? It was a little bit ridiculous, but it's like we said earlier, there's no competition for them at the time. You know, Sugar Ray Robinson's knocking out his opponents, he's he's outclassing his opponents, he's making them look silly. So the only guy that's really done anything in the ring with him, that's that's made it a life and death situation for him, was Jake LaMotta. And, and they certainly fought again, and they fought again in 1945, and that was the fourth fight between the two of them. Yeah, and, and you say that, I mean... It, the, the, the pair of them were feared. Neither of them, nobody wanted to go near them. Everybody knew that Sugar Ray was a top fighter. I mean, even going back to when he fought his 21st fight against Sammy Ag- Ag- Agnot in uh, in 41, uh, he was actually the lightweight champion at the time, didn't put his title on the line and he beat him. And that was the point where, where Sugar Ray, although he didn't have a title, he was considered to be a big business. And he actually earned himself $6,000 for that fight. And that was a big amount of money for him. I think he went and bought his mum a house, and he bought himself a car. So although he wasn't a, a champion, or he wasn't even, it seemed like he was going to be knocking on the door for the title, but it just wasn't to be, because people just didn't want to give him a shot. And the fact, that, you know, of his colour, unfortunately. Sugar Ray Robinson, it took him longer. I mean, Jake LaMotta, it took him long. It was just, it just showed you that with, just how corrupt the system was, really, before you even got to that full fight. But when you did get to the full fight, and obviously, at this point now, raised 2-1 up against Lomoto. And, and the fourth encounter was pretty much the same as the third. There wasn't much difference. If anything, it was more convincing for Sugar Ray Robinson. And uh, I think many observers, I think, gave him 9 out of 10 rounds. So, Lomoto, I think I think the one thing with Lomoto is he wasn't never a great champion. No, never a great middleweight champion. And he was also... A big middleweight, you know, he was always, he ended up going into sort of like heavy, but he was, he was a bit one-dimensional, and you knew what he was going to get with Lamar, and I think one thing about Sugar Ray Robinson was he just, he was a very clever fighter, and he just, he just had his number, he knew how to beat him, and he knew what he needed to do, 
and he done that in that full fight. I'll never forget the first time I fought Robinson. He was punching the hell out of me. And all of a sudden I saw an opening. It was in my head. Because Sugar Ray is very superstitious. He had a horseshoe reach glove for good luck. After the fifth round, my manager kept telling me, don't let him hit your mouthpiece. Don't let him hit your mouthpiece. I said to him, what the heck do I care what he does to my lawyer? In between rounds, I could drink a brandy. I lost the decision, but I was the happiest guy in Madison Square Garden. But I gotta tell you something, Rock. I've fought Sugar Ray so many times, it's a wonder I don't have diabetes. After that fourth fight, his next fight, Sugar Ray Robinson, was against Jose Basora, who is a mutual opponent of these two fighters, Jake Lamarta and Sugar Ray Robinson. He actually got a draw with Jose Pesora, which was the first draw in his record. So he'd obviously won all of his fights, but won and then got that draw against Pesora after the fourth fight with Jake Lamotta. So, you know, at this point, he's still a fantastic fighter. He's still a guy to be feared. He's still a guy who's beating everybody that's that's putting in front of him. But it must have been a, a bit of an upset in some senses that obviously this was the, sugar, the great Sugar Ray Robinson at that time. And there's one thing I wanted to touch on at this point before we, we move further on in the careers of both of them is that you can't find a lot of this footage anywhere. You can't find footage of a lot of these fights that we're talking about. A lot of it, as you said earlier, Johnston, is down to the fact that you've got witness reports from ringside you've got articles from journalists that were there at the time at ringside you've got very limited information that you can source upon for this and it's a it's a crime that you know a lot of these fights weren't recorded and a lot of it was due to the fact it was during the course of the second world war that most of sugar ray robinson's fights actually took place and there was the story about him going on on a tour as well which was was interesting going fighting around and, and and obviously helping support the troops as well which was you know a really good story to to hear about so again Sugar Ray Robinson a guy that there's not a massive great deal of footage on but the footage that is out there on him it just you can see why people like Muhammad Ali was inspired by a guy like Sugar Ray Robinson. Oh, absolutely! I think he he was he was good friends with uh, with Joe Lewis, but he, I think he was inducted into the United States Army the day after he fought Jake Lamotta in the third fight. So that was when Sugar Ray went in to, for World War Two, and he was actually discharged on June third, nineteen forty four, just before he fought Henry Armstrong. So you know, during that time, he he was what, what he did was I, I believe it was some of the black uh, army, some of the from from the, the black the black guys from the army uh, were, were being told they can't watch some of the exhibition fights they were putting on him and Joe Lewis, and he refused to fight unless they were there. So there was actually an interrace situation where all the all the troops were sitting there watching it together, which was a first. So he, he had an impact. He was end of the day, Sugar Ray Robinson and Jake Lamar. Let's get it right. They were chauvinists. They, they they knew what they wanted. They were a bit ignorant, I suppose. But I suppose you know this isn't about them as a person. It's more to do with them as a fighter and, and what what great fighters they were. I mean, it, it, there's no doubt about it. And he's what, now we're in a situation where he has now beaten Lamotta pretty much every time, and it, it didn't seem sort of any point to be fighting again. But it happened again for everyone down the line. But obviously, there was a few things in between that before we get to that that last fight that we're going to obviously discuss. Going back to Lamotta's career then, in 1945 he actually fought another one 
of the fighters off the list of the Black Murderers Row, which was Bert Lytle, who I mentioned earlier. He was the second fighter from the Murderers Row that Lamotta fought on April the 27th, 1945. And this time he actually got the victory in that particular fight. And then he fought Tommy Bell, and then he fought Jose Pessoa and knocked Jose Pessoa out in nine rounds. So he goes and has one more fight before the Sugar Ray Robinson fifth fight. And... For Sugar Ray Robinson at this point as well, we were talking about, obviously, his fights with Jose Pizarro and the draw that he got. He had two more fights before the fifth fight with, with Jake LaMotta. Now, the fifth fight between the two of them was was a 12-round war. This was, I think, a bit of a pretext to what this legendary night is that we're covering, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. It, it was a bloody battle, uh, and both men was hurt at points of the fight, and... It was a really, really close decision on the cards. It went to Ray Robinson on the night. Ray Robinson actually got the decision, and it was a split decision. Now, there was many ringside observers and journalists around at the time that felt like Lamotta actually deserved it on that night. And even Ray himself judged it to be the toughest bout of his career at that point. Yeah, he did, and it was a bloody battle. It was a tough fight, and again, it's literally what we're reading. Fortunately, we just didn't don't get the footage, you get some photographs and that's about it. This one was a lot closer and and obviously Lamotta must have adapted and just tried to switch it up a little bit and Ray Robinson maybe slightly overlooked him, maybe tried to go in with some of the exchanges at, at close quarters rather than fighting at a distance, which is the best way to, if you're going to fight Jake Lamotta, you fight him at a distance because no matter how many times you hit the fella, he's just going to keep coming forward. <laughs> so uh, it, was a, it was a cracking fight, the fifth fight by the sounds of it. Again, it's just a shame we can't ever actually see this and it's just people telling us another win for Sugar Ray against Shake Lamotta and it does seem pointless, doesn't it? You're four, four and one, is there any need? Obviously, it's still a little bit of time before we get that final fight, but sounds like it was an absolute belter. Yeah, again, just a shame we, we never got the opportunity to be able to, to watch any footage of the fight and obviously a lot of the information that we can source, again, is from, is from ringside articles, is from news clippings from from back in that period of time. So going back to Lamotta's career then, another significant name on his career is Holman Williams. Again, this was the third fighter from the murderer's role that Lamotta fought in 1946. So three fighters from the Black Murderer's Row. And there, there, there is actually a couple of documentaries out there and a couple of books about the Black Murderer's Row, which I would highly recommend you go and watch if you are an avid boxing fan. It's certainly a good watch and a good read to, to really get up on your history and about how these guys were were avoided. And, and it's quite criminal, to be honest with you, that these guys never got their own opportunities in their own rights. So moving on for, for Lamotta's career then, I think you, you start to look at the, the back end of the 1940s now and you've got a particular win that he had on June the 6th, 1947 at Madison Square Garden in New York. It's actually a famous scene in the film from 1980, Raging Bull. So when De Niro, played by Lamotta, is moaning about how he's got to get down to £155, Joe Pesci, who plays his brother, Joey, comes back with a great line and says, if you win, you win. If you lose, you lose. You still win. There's no way you can lose. Stop eating, you fat bastard. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great scene that, and it's a brilliant film, Raging Bull. It's one of my favourites. Joe Pesci, that was his first real big film as well, and and the chemistry between them two was just outstanding. And, and no doubt, why they obviously went on to do Godfather Two together, but that's obviously a completely separate thing. But yeah, that is, I think that's pretty much the only reason why Tony uh, Gennaro is is a quite is mentioned often because obviously Jake was at his point 
he was struggling with the weight. And I think that's one thing that Sugar Ray always said, that he always knew that Lamotta was, he was, he was at this point now where he was eating too much and he was probably too big for a middleweight. Still hadn't got the title shot. Neither of them had, had an opportunity to fight for it. It's crazy, isn't it? You just think about how legendary these two guys are. And, but yeah, obviously, staying with Jake, he then goes on to lose after winning that fight against Tony Gero. He fights Phil Hudson for the infamous Billy Fox fight. And for anyone that don't know the Billy Fox fight, for, 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 let's just set the scene. So Jake Lamotta is a middleweight, struggling the middleweight at, at, by the sounds of it. He's no way wants to get involved with a mob who had a, a, a huge hold on boxing at the time, especially on the East Coast. It was branching out to the West, but unfortunately he had to bend, bend to it. Um, uh, his brother Jerry was a guy that was sort of in and around with, with some of these guys, and, and the guys were a certain Mr. Gray, who was uh, Frankie Carbo and uh, Blinky Palermo. These these two guys were the underground mafia. Carbo was the murdering nutcase that used to just murder people, basically. I mean, you don't piss about with these fellas. And he kept turning them down, and then eventually he was offered this opportunity. And, and you see it, it's a famous scene in Raging Bull, and Jake Lomotta turns around and says this, it happened exactly that. I think it was even in his book, although he doesn't mention his brother. He just mentions, I think he's just a close friend in the book that he says. But either way, I think he meets him in the rain and he says to him, you've got to throw this fight. You know, you've got to give Billy Fox the win. Billy Fox wins. Your next fight will be for a world title. So he bowed to him. And that was after, like, what was this? The point is 64-11-3. So he's had a hell of a lot of fights and he hasn't got the opportunity. So you can completely understand why Jake would do it. This is the, this is the era. Now, so the 4th of November, 1947, Madison Square Garden. He fights Billy Fox and... He basically don't do nothing. <laughs> he basically stands there and lets Billy Fox beat him up. But he said, he, he's hitting me. I ain't feeling it. And I think he throws a jab. And he said, I threw a jab. And Billy Fox looks like he wobbles. And he said, he felt like he was going to have to hold him up. So he's, he's thinking to himself, I'm throwing a jab and I'm knocking this guy out. So he he, could, he just couldn't throw nothing. That's what he said. That's why he said he did it. He just didn't throw no punches. And in the end, he, he gets stopped. And it's the one time he really gets stopped. I think he one other time later on in his career when he's sort of right at the end of his career. Other than that, you look at it and you see it as a TKA, but it's not. Lamotta literally throws a fight. And, and there was a, you know, he's investigated and he's actually suspended as well. I tried to avoid them. All my life I avoided them. My brother was the one that was involved with it. And he only did it for me. Bring, bring back messages to me. Because they knew I didn't want to bother with them. I wanted to give an opportunity to fight for the championship of the world. I deserved it. I was on crown chance for five years. I deserved that shot. Nobody wanted to give it to me. So I just went right ahead and do what I thought was the best thing for me to do. And if I had to do it all over again, I would do the same thing. Yeah, interesting. Again, great little story behind that. And again, if you want to read up on that, there's plenty of documentaries and, and articles out there to read up on that particular incident. And it would obviously come back to uh, haunt Jake LaMotta later on down the line. So moving on then, there is so many things to consider with these two guys' careers. And this is only a whistle-stop tour of it. So I think the, the next significant fight for me leading up to the St. Valentine's Day massacre was eventually when he got that world title shot, Jake LaMotta. So he didn't get it in his next fight, but he did get it later on down the line. And it was 
Not until 1949 that he actually got the fight with the current middleweight champion, who was Marcel Sedan, who was 110 and three at the time. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant record. Again, these guys are absolute animals. So Sedan, Sedan was French. Sedan was a hero from France. He was he was an he was idolised. Now. This was the big chance for Jake Lamont. It was a 15-round fight, and Marcel Sedan, he, he got injured in the second round, and he was shoulder that ended up getting separated in this particular fight. Now, nobody knew about this at the time. Marcel Sedan was a fighting champion, so he would go in there and he would fight for a further seven rounds with a separated shoulder until eventually he had to retire on his stool in round number nine. And Lamotta gets ground the middleweight champion, so he was... The NBA, the ring, and the lineal middleweight champion of the world finally achieving his dream, which had been promised to him previously by that affiliation with Frankie Carbo and the mob. So he finally becomes the middleweight champion of the world on June the 16th, 1949. Sedan was a courageous boxer. In this fight, a fall in the first round injured Sedan's left shoulder. You will notice he can't use the arm at all. Sedan throwing only one punch, the right. Lamotta knows it. And although he respects Sedan, he wants that title. In round nine, Lamotta, always a great puncher, stays close, trying to minimize Sedan's right. Lamotta in dark trunks with a white waistband sends his victory. But the gallant Frenchman won't give up, trying to get one punch home that will end it all. But Lamotta, who can give it as well as take it, steps up the pace. Sudan still unable to use that left hand, still using one arm, his right. The end comes dramatically in the 10th round when Sudan cannot enter the bell. His left arm, injured in the fall of the first round, proves Sudan's undoing, and Jake Lamotta is the new middleweight champion. It's crazy, I mean, he offered the title shot in, what, 47? He gets it in 49, but he gets it. I mean, that's the main thing. He did get it, and he took his opportunity. And I mean, Marcel Sudan, what? His record speaks for itself, you know, 110 and 3. You know, that's incredible. I mean, that is unreal. Coming over, away from home as well as a champion. Thought a lot of times, obviously, being French in France. So he came to Detroit to fight Jake and he got the opportunity. And as you say, he had that separated shoulder in the second match to fight on. In the end, he just couldn't come out and Lamotta wins the fight. And so because of that, Sudan, his initial thing, he thought he's going to go home and I'm going to sort myself out, you know, get myself fit again. And they actually arranged for the rematch. And I believe because he was with a famous French singer, this is why he was such a famous... I mean, not only was he a great fighter, but he was idolised in France because of the, the lady he was with as well. I think he was actually going somewhere to, to, watch her, to, to watch her sing. And unfortunately, he was in a plane crash at the age of 33. He unfortunately uh, died very early. And uh, Lamotta never got the chance to get the rematch with, with Marcel Sedan, which would have been another cracking fight, I'm sure. So... It's a shame, but, um, you know, these, these are the stories, unfortunately, that you, you, you end up picking up as you go through these careers. So, yeah, it never happened. But Lamotta remained the middleweight champion of the world. Well, it's funny because he nearly lost it leading up to the Sugar Ray Robinson six and final fight in our legendary night for this episode. And the one significant fight prior to fighting Sugar Ray Robinson that I wanted to touch on was the second fight they had with Lauren DeFuli, which was for the ring and lineal middleweight titles and a fight that was also voted 1950s fight of the year by the ring magazine. Now, in this particular fight, 
Dorfuli was up on all scorecards going into the final round, but Jake LaMotta's pressure fighting was always there from start to finish, and it paid off in the final round as he flattened him with the left-right combination that sent the Frenchman through the ropes. It was the end of the fight. <laughs> it's crazy, absolutely crazy that this guy, Jake LaMotta, who had had such a turbulent career at this point and, and, and his turbulent life, at this point, and this is just 1950, this is before our legendary night that we're covering, and he goes in there, nearly loses his middleweight titles that he worked so hard and affiliated himself with the mob to do so, manages with a whisker of time left over to go and stop Dathuli and retain his middleweight championships to be able to get that fight with Sugar Ray Robinson. The sixth and the final fight, which which we'll talk about shortly. So that happened on September the 13th, 1950. It was in round number 15 of a scheduled 15 rounds. And the stoppage came at 2 minutes and 47 seconds of the 15th round. He had 13 seconds left on the clock when he stopped him. Unbelievable. I mean... Could you imagine today, everybody would just be mailing social media, wouldn't it? This fight, take the motto behind on all three scorecards. The scorecards were read 72, 68, 74, 66, 71, 69. It was going to be a complete shutout. And even Laurent Dufoule even turned around and said that he boxed a fantastic fight for 15 rounds in two minutes. <laughs> Literally, that last sort of half a minute, oh, 12 or 13 seconds left on the clock. And, he gets, and it is, I mean, you can actually see this. This is... There is footage of this, of Jake Lamar. I mean, it is a pulverising finish. You can see, obviously, chasing him around the ring and he, and he just catches him with his left right and then, again, sends him through the ropes like he does with, did with Robinson in their uh, second fight. And, uh, yeah, uh, absolutely brilliant. And then one fight that, you know, I'm sure we probably couldn't get the whole thing of, but I'm sure somewhere someone got it out there. But what a fight that sounds like that was. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that's one that I would have I would have loved to have been able to fully catch up on, you know, the full fight. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. So that leads us nicely, obviously, into that fight for Jake Lamar. But Sugar Ray Robinson's career, obviously, will go back to his career at the start of the decade from the 1950s. And obviously, he's still in the welterweight division and he's still defending his ring and lineal welterweight titles and getting victories and it was at that point that he decided obviously a move up in weight yet again was needed because he again he was beating all the competition that it was was put in front of him and he was just he just seemed very straightforward for him at this period of time and instead what he decides to do at this point is go on a tour in Europe to basically get him ready for a shot at Jake LaMotta for the middleweight title so he's moved up to middleweight and he goes and fights in France in Belgium in Switzerland in Germany and then comes back to the USA to fight for the ring and lineal middleweight titles against Jake LaMotta yeah and and that was that was a big thing for for Sugar Ray that he uh he was just struggling to to obviously to get any real opponents I, I, I mean he did he had the, he was he finally did get his title shot against Tommy Bell in their second fight in 1946 to win the uh, worldweight title so he did pick up a worldweight title finally after a very long time and it was a vacant title which was actually vacated by Marty Servo so it was a vacated title which he won and he held on to he held on to sort for ages uh, he actually, there was a situation with Jimmy Doyle, who he uh, who he died in the ring. We can go into that at another point, but basically he had a premonition in his dream and he, he said he didn't want to fight. He ended up 
taking on Jimmy Doyle when he actually did catch him with a left hook and he died, unfortunately, for uh, injuries sustained in the ring. So, as you say, he was working his way through the weight division with pretty much ease. A lot of these fights, are sort of, it was after sort of Kid Gavilan the second fight, which was, a, Kid Gavilan is another excellent fighter, by the way. He literally fought most of his fights. He didn't really defend his title. He, most of the time he fought at 150, 153, even as far as 155. So he's fighting in the middleweight division pretty much all the way. And it was a one fight against Charlie Fuseri, who was for his weight title, but he was almost coming overweight very slightly, but you could see he was clearly struggling to make weight, And then he decided to go on his European tour and embark on his European tour and he was brilliant. And he came back from the European tour ready to rock and roll. He prepared himself to fight Jake Lamotta to pick up the middleweight title. This is where it gets interesting then. Obviously, the build-up to this particular fight, there's one particular story from the build-up to this fight that when I read through the details of it, it just, it made me laugh because it just made me think, you know, at the time, what benefit did Sugar Ray have from doing this? So, when they actually met to sign contracts for the fight for the middleweight title, Sugar Ray Robinson actually tried to psych out Jake LaMotta, and he did that by drinking a glass of blood which was drained from a beef steak. This is this is Jake LaMotta, by the way. No fucks given with this guy. And Sugar Ray Robinson tries to psych him out by drinking a glass of blood from a beef steak, which I thought was a pretty funny story, but a strange story at the at the same time. But for LaMotta, it didn't even phase him whatsoever because obviously he was just as aggressive on fight night as he was any other time. But the one thing that was interesting for this particular fight for Jake LaMotta was that he actually struggled to make the weight for what was his third defence against Sugar Ray Robinson. He actually was six pounds over the limit the day before the fight. Wow. See that, and that was that was always a problem with him. I think he just liked his food, but even <laughs> and he was very he was very close. I mean, he was in like, you could see the footage, and you could also, you know, from we've read and loads of historians and observers said how how much great shape he was in. I mean, he must have had to starve himself as well to really get himself down to that weight. And I think Sugar Ray knew that as well. And I think he's you know he's four and one up basically going into this sixth fight and. And that drinking the blood is just class, isn't it? I mean, apparently, he used to do it for stamina. I don't quite... I suppose there's a lot of iron in it. I don't really know. I mean, it worked for him, I suppose. So, you're trying to psych out Jake Lamar, no chance. Sugar Ray, playing mind games. And obviously, he knew. He was struggling at welterweight. He knew now he's now going to go in and fight at middleweight. Pretty much been fighting at middleweight since sort of Kid Gavilan fight. Had the one defence. He was still the current welterweight champion as well, by the way. But... He always openly said that if he wins this fight, he will fight middle. I think he was always, there was never going to be any intention of him going back down to welterweight. So from this point, and, and pretty much this is where you start really seeing the, the footage of some most of his fights as well. Ironically, you know, not really so much at welterweight where he's considered to be one of the greatest. So it's literally hearsay where we can see what how good Robinson was in a way at middleweight. But just t- touching on there, their relationship. I mean, obviously, they obviously knew each other very well. This was an opportunity for Jake to get a bit of revenge. I think he was he was ready for this fight, and Sugar Ray wanted to prove that he was the the better fighter, and he was going to be the man to take over that middleweight crown and and look to cement his legacy as a middleweight as as much as he did as a welter. Which people actually, you know, a lot of people turn around and say that at this point 
he was up there with Henry Armstrong as one of the greatest lightweights ever. So he was already considered to be a great welterweight, sorry, um, not lightweight, welterweight. And uh, the middleweight was a was a new horizon, a new a new thought for him, and a new process for him to really cement his legs together. Absolute icon. Leading his handlers up the stairs, the middleweight champion Lamata dethroned the stout-hearted French Moroccan Marcel Sedan in 1949, and has since successfully defended his title in three engagements. The bell rings. Jake stops whatever he's doing. Consequently, the exact amount of time is spent on each phase of training. His beautiful blonde wife is a familiar sight wherever Lamata trains. Endurance and stamina have always been in Lamata's favor. But the wear and tear of the ring has taken their toll, and Jake faces a severe test against Sugar Ray. Robinson and Lamata have fought five times, with Sugar Ray emerging victorious on four occasions. Five years have elapsed since their last meeting. Lamata, since acquiring the middleweight title, has become a very cautious fighter. But come February 14, caution will be thrown to the wind as the champions meet his severest test, the dazzling and hard-punching Ray Robinson. The fight itself, then, let's just touch on a few facts about the, the fight itself. So it happened 14th of February, and it was in 1951. And it was at the Chicago Stadium with an attendance of 14,802 people. And it was it was a big money fight. This was actually you know a big money fight back then because the gross gate for it was one hundred and eighty thousand six hundred and nineteen dollars, and the net gate turned out to be one hundred and thirty eight thousand nine hundred and thirty eight dollars. Now, this doesn't seem like a lot of money in twenty twenty, but this was nineteen fifty one. So you can probably times that by about ten, and you're probably looking at about anything between fifty and a hundred million. I think for, for this particular fight, that's what it probably equates to in in our wow. money. So it was it was a ridiculous amount of money because even though Sugar Ray Robinson was four and one up at this point, Jake Lamotta was the middleweight champion of the world. Sugar Ray Robinson had obviously moved up from the welterweight division to challenge him. He did his tour of Europe and he came here. At the time the fight happened, Sugar Ray Robinson was twenty nine years old. He was the three to one favorite for this particular fight as well whereas Jake LaMotta was 28 years old now in terms of the purses for this particular fight so Jake LaMotta took 45% of the net which he received $62,522 plus $1,500 from the television rights as well Sugar Ray Robinson only got 15% which was $20,840 plus he also got $1,500 from the television and that just, to me, goes back to the fact that at this moment in time, as we pointed out on a number of occasions, boxing was controlled by the Mafia at this point. And you're probably wondering to yourself, why did Sugar Ray Robinson never get involved with him? Well, Sugar Ray Robinson was actually well established on his own. And one of the biggest things about the mob and boxing was that they 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 targeted fighters who weren't necessarily going to get themselves onto a platform without their assistance so when the one and only time they did approach sugar ray robinson which was mr gray frankie carbo about doing business sugar ray robinson were interested in doing it and that was it there was there was no repercussions from the mob there was no you know strong code over him it was just a case of he was already a well-established fighter at this point because he obviously won welterweight titles and he was this big name and he was well known and he was quite flashy and quite fancy and driving around in his cadillac and obviously did all the stuff that he did during the second world war as well to help the troops so he was already a celebrity himself really at this time whereas for jake lamotta he wasn't as much of a celebrity he was a guy that he just wasn't going to make the cut really people didn't think he would ever win a world title so 
obviously when he did eventually win a world title it was uh, a big surprise to many and you know obviously as years would go by there'd be a lot of more talk of obviously boxing and the mafia involved but it made me think about these purses it made me think that was probably looking back on on that and what we know about the history of boxing and and the mafia's stronghold over it it was probably likely that Jake Lamotta got more of the purse than what Sugar Ray Robinson did, not only because he was the champion, the defending champion, but because of the fact that obviously the boxing was controlled by the Mafia at this point. Without knowing fully the details, it was probably likely that the Mafia had a lot of influence over the gate recipients for this particular fight. Even though Sugar Ray Robinson was involved and he didn't necessarily do business with them, they obviously had more of a stronghold over what Lamotta was doing in his career because of their previous affiliation. So... It's crazy to look at the fact that the purses were so disproportionate here. And for me, it just goes to show you that boxing and the mafia at that period of time just went hand in hand. And it just goes to show you how much of a, an influence they had at that period of time. So going back to Jake LaMotta, this was the third defence of his middleweight title. And at this point, he had a record of 78 wins, 14 losses and three draws on his record before getting into the ring for the sixth and final fight with Sugar Ray Robinson. Yeah, and, and you, you're absolutely right. I mean, the fact that, you know, the title was... It, it, it was, it was the NBA, was it, at the time? I think that was the title, wasn't it? And Jake was, was the champion, and, and they run it. They run their organisation. That was that was basically it. Anything that was happened in the East Coast was all mafia-led, you know, especially within Chicago. Obviously, Madison Square Garden was there. That was their patch, you know. You, you couldn't get a fight there without their go-ahead. And as you say, you know, with Sugar Ray Robinson, after the Zivic fights, which happened sort of 1942, that was the time when Sugar Ray Robinson actually became his own manager. He got rid of Carl Harmon and actually got old uh, Mike Jacobs, another old, another name we know, Mike Jacobs, who was a part of the old uh, Joe Lewis, Max Schmeling fight. Uh, and Mike Jacobs was also a part of, I wouldn't, I'm not quite sure his affiliation with it. I think he managed it and I think he had to deal with them, unfortunately. I don't know the ins and outs of Mike completely, but he actually took $10,000, Sugar Ray Robinson, from Mike Jacobs to buy out Carl Harmon, who was his manager at the time. So he obviously see himself he was very astute businessman when it comes to his fighting and negotiating fights, although this one in particular probably doesn't look so great. But I suppose if you're going to be dealing with these guys, he obviously see it as I'm going to win this title. And no matter what, you know, I'm going to bring on the bacon so you can give me what you want and I'm going to earn a shitload of money after. And that's probably that's exactly what happened. So the fight itself, great fight and a, and a great start from uh, Jake Lamotta. So this was one of the first big fights that was actually put on what is now known as our our goggle box, the TV. So the popular technology of a home television was brought into a lot of people's households at this point in time. So it was one of them big major fights that was on the TV. So this was this was a big transcending moment really for boxing and obviously what a fight for them to actually be able to get their eyes on really, which was this one. So Jake Lamotta started this fight. The way he started pretty much all of the fights, which was to go in there and and, and target Sugar Ray Robinson's head and then try to work the body. Now I think Jake Lamotta knew at this point, judging by the fact that we know that he was overweight the night before, that he probably wasn't gonna be able to have the stamina to go the distance in this fight so it was obviously all about him trying to get Sugar Ray Robinson out there and that's what exactly what he was trying to do in the opening rounds he was trying to get Sugar Ray Robinson out of there and you can see 
the tenacity he's got in him, it just seems to be that little bit more edgier than the previous five fights where there's more urgency to the work that he's putting in in the first few rounds. And obviously because of that weight issue, you wouldn't have known it at the time as a fan watching it. You would have just thought, you know, look at look at Jake Lamont, look at him go for it. He's, he's trying to stop Ray Robinson here. And he was trying to do that. But obviously Sugar Ray Robinson is a beautiful boxer. Absolutely beautiful boxer. And his aggression was so calculated. He was using a lot of energy sapping shots to Jake Lamotta's midsection. So whether they knew something about the fact that he was obviously overweight, massively overweight, that they wanted to use that to his advantage and they targeted the body because they knew that's where they were going to sap his energy from. And that is exactly what he did in the first few rounds. He did. He, he, he fought on the back foot, Sugar Ray. He fought really well on the back foot and was just popping off that jab. Although one thing in that opening round, for instance, with, with Jake, I thought his left jab was brilliant. I thought he was working well behind it. And when he was getting close, he was really having a go out, Ray. And I think he did go for broke in that first round. And he did really go for it. Obviously, as you say, his mindset is just try and get rid of him early. And it was pretty much the battle of the jabs for pretty much the first sort of three rounds and although I felt that Sugar Ray sort of in the second and the third round I thought what he started to do was he was able to keep Jacob Bay time up at times and he was actually starting to, to get off that right hand behind that jab uh, and they were effective and they were really hard solid jabs when he really sat down on them and and it sort of stopped Jake in his movement, movement going forward but he would still keep coming forward so he stopped him in his tracks a little bit but not so much, but that, that third round for me, I thought was an excellent, excellent round. And it was literally where, where Ray sort of got, he has a great little, literally from the beginning, he's going to the head, he's going to the body, and he's tying him up when he's in close. You know, Jake sort of continued to stalk him, but yet Ray was sort of circling around him, just popping off that jab, and it was just, it was great to see. You know, this is 1951, for goodness sake, and just watching Sugar Ray Robinson was almost just like he's so so ahead of his time it was ridiculous landing those wonderful combinations to their head and the body throwing up a stunning uppercut at one point in the third or the fourth it was he just he was just a bit bit clever and he was he was he was trying to make you know you could see jake really forcing the issue but unfortunately you could see he was he, he needed to get rid of him earlier and you could see robertson had a plan he had a long plan and it was going to be i'm going to just work my way through these rounds tire him out and then i can do my business later on and yeah, it was, it was. But in the fourth round, sort of Jake came back into it. I thought he fought really well. I think it was a, a good round for Jake in that fourth round. But so I did sort of two apiece going into the fifth. I think the biggest opportunity for Jake Lamotta in this fight, I think it came in the sixth round for me. When you look at the sixth round, he really hurt Sugar Ray Robinson with the left hook. And it was followed up by a vicious combination that actually drew blood. And it had Sugar Ray Robinson in a little bit of trouble at this point as well. And bearing in mind, obviously, in that second fight, he'd put Sugar Ray Robinson through the ropes and, and won that fight. So we obviously seen this as his opportunity, but Sugar Ray, he had the knowledge. And as you said, he had IQ way ahead of his time. He was able to survive that onslaught and, and carry on throughout the rounds. And that was his plan. It was to, it was to basically draw the energy away from Jake LaMotta and the you know the, the aggressiveness of him and, and he knew what to expect because he'd been in there so so many times, he'd shared the ring so many times, even though this particular fight was what, four or five years after their last fight, they'd still shared the ring that many times and it was it was probably like riding a bike for the pair of them really, getting in getting in the ring together once more. But 
For Sugar Ray Robinson, you know, he would continue to battle on throughout the fight. And as it got to the later end of the fight, he's looking at about round 11 now. This is where you can see, watching back on the fight, Lamotta's gas tank is, is pretty much empty now at this point. He's, he's, he's unloaded shots left, right and centre. Sugar Ray Robinson's elusiveness and his counter-punching was absolutely sublime. And you can see that the champion at this point is, is staging what is probably his last ditch attempt to really rally against Sugar Ray Robinson. He's, he's trying to drive him into the ropes. He's, he's unleashing like these barrage of punches in what is probably his final effort to try and force a stoppage against Sugar Ray Robinson. But these types of gambles in a fight like that were never going to pay off because by the end of, of round number 11... Sugar Ray Robinson's got him reeling because Sugar Ray Robinson's counter-attack, again, was, was brilliant. And you can see where the likes of Muhammad Ali and even Sugar Ray Leonard used that same blueprint in some of their major fights in their career where they would basically leave short bursts in, say, the last minute to 30 seconds of a fight and then they would throw these punches where the challenger or the champion or whoever it was they were fighting at the time would spent all that energy out that they just basically got a lot of hurtful punches off by by using the counter attack and this is what was happening in the latter end of the fight with these two with Lamotta and Robinson is by the end of the 11th Jake Lamotta's absolutely spent he's getting hurt at this point and you're going into the 12th and I think for me the 12th round was where it marked the end of what was previously a competitive fight it was i mean it was it was close wasn't it it was it was close up to about round seven and then thereafter uh, lamont was out of gas you know it, it was there was no you, you can't make no bones about it and, and and sugar ray it was a tactic he had already adopted before this fight even started it was 100 percent what his game plan was and you could see him sort of going through the gears from the first round literally and he just ups the tempo. He would double up the jab, and then he would throw the right hand. And then the next, the next round, he'll throw the right hand, and then come with the left, and then throw an uppercut. And then he'd back off. And and although Jake's having his moments in some of the rounds, he's sort of giving him odd rounds here and there. It's pretty close, but it was just beautiful at times from Sugar Ray. It really was. And you know, it, it was it, one thing I I will always look at when I watch this fight in particular. I've watched it before and. Sort of watched it back the other night. It was almost like watching a mirror mirror image of, of Muhammad Ali, and and obviously this happened before a certain Muhammad Ali come along. So you can clearly see that, that how much of an influence this guy had on, on on Muhammad Ali because he fought pretty much the same as a sort of a heavyweight, obviously. But it, it's just it's just, it's just uncanny, really, and 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 but just to see how great he was in in this era is just is just outstanding, and, and and Ray just continued to just sort of as you say, getting into the eleventh round, it was actually really it was quite brutal. I mean, I think today that fight would have been stopped. You could see Jake now; his hands are just so low, and he's literally he's literally defending with his chin, and that's about all you can say, really. While Sugar Ray Robinson is just unloaded on him, and vicious shots. Big, big right hands that obviously doesn't go down. And obviously you see the famous thing from Ranging Ball where he's sort of saying, you never, you never got me off my feet, Ray. You never, you never put me down, Ray. I mean, that, that is an absolute, just, just made up myth. If you ever watched the fight, right, Jake, the water ain't in no condition to be talking to Sugar Ray after the fight. The reason why they call it the St. Valentine's Massacre is literally because he gets 
pulverised in that 11th and 12th round. He certainly does, and, and Sugar Ray Robinson's obviously out to do what no man had ever done before, which was support Jake LaMotta on the canvas. In 95 fights, he'd never tasted the canvas. And it was strange because, like you said, the referee refrained from stepping in the fight. The champion somehow managed to survive through them rounds. And even the ringside physician would visit the corner of Jake Lamar between the rounds, but still allowed the fight to go on, which was, again, quite strange. But this was Jake Lamar. This was a guy that, that would never go down, as, as you know, you would rightly point out there. And like you said, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, the reason it's called the St. Valentine's Day Massacre is because in round number 13, Lamar... He absorbed a truly horrific pounding. Now, everybody ringside and everybody watching this fight could see that he was done. The fight was done, essentially. The champion, no chance of winning. But he simply refused to go down. And he withstood seemingly an endless amount of Robinson's best punches. And it just seemed like the referee was reluctant to stop it. And he's, you know, even as Lamotta, he's can't, he can't even keep his hands up at this point. He's, he's just literally on the ropes, getting pummeled, absolutely pummeled. He's staggering about. He's, he's being caught clean, vicious shots that probably would have knocked out many other fighters on the planet. But this again is Jake Lamotta, and it was only after a really flush right hand that nearly took his head off completely that they decided it was finally time to to stop the fight. Two minutes to go, round 13. Lamotta at this moment, a tired battler, a chopping block. Robinson trying to KO him. For eight rounds, Lamotta gave better than he took. And then Robinson unleashed all of his best guns for the last four rounds. These are clean, whistling shots, lefts and rights. How he can survive them, nobody knows. Head shake at the ringside. The fight is going to be stopped on the signal from the chairman of the Illinois Athletic Commission, Joe Kleiner, to Frankie Sapora. The fight was stopped in the 13th round with our scorecard showing that Ray Robinson was ahead 63 points to 57. And in the 13th round, the hard luck round, the championship of the world has changed hands. And there you see it, a champion gone down to defeat. The fight was stopped on a signal from Joe Trine. Attention, ladies and gentlemen, the winner by a technical knockout in two minutes and four seconds of the 13th round... And the new world middleweight boxing champion, Sugar Ray Robinson. Ray, I'm very pleased to welcome the new middleweight champion. Thank you. It's a very hard fight. I'm very glad to win. I'd like to say hello to my good well, friend. To my good friend down in uh, Miami, WW. Everything was okay. I'm not hurt. And uh, I'm sorry that I could not get a chance to turn over the check for $25,000 to the, uh, to the, to the uh, Runyon Fund here for the... Chicago, uh, I forget Chicago the name. Chicago University. I have a Chicago, check right yeah, down Chicago University. You it's for $25,000. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like you to know, I'm happy to say that I am a member of the Runyon Fund that donated that check. We also sent $25,000 to California, $10,000 to Howard University. And this $25,000 that we donated tonight to the Chicago University is well over $200,000 that we've contributed to such worthy causes. And we hope to be able to raise much more and help other charities. W.W., I've done the best I could. I'd like to ask you one question before you go, Ray. When did you know that you had him? Because you were fighting pretty evenly for eight rounds. Well, that's the way we planned the fight. We figured Lamar would be strong as he was. First part of the fight and the last part of the fight, he would weaken. 
we figured to box along the first part of the fight and wait till he showed signs of weakening, which he did. I see. And in, the, in those late rounds after the eighth, he showed signs, and my manager told me to start throwing open up uh, heavier punches. Now, it was actually the ringside officials who signaled the end to the fight. And the referee then jumped in. So the ringside officials basically signaled to the referee that this fight needs to stop now. This fight needs to, to, to stop. And that's exactly what happened. He stopped the fight. The referee steps in and he raised Sugar Ray's Robinson's hand. And he becomes the first fighter to essentially get a TKO victory over Jake LaMotta. But Jake LaMotta never went down in that fight and that is what brings that famous scene in the Raging Bull film and that is also why it's known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre because of how much of a pounding he took in that fight. There's no way in this day and age that would happen. After three or four punches it would have been done. There must have been there must have been what, twenty to thirty unanswered punches, probably more. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. But that would call an end to the fight and that would be the end and that would be the end of their saga and the end of, of what was a legendary tale between these two. Unbelievable. Really was and, and, and it was like a it was like a fucking zombie, wasn't it, Jake Lavar, when you watch that and just seeing him stand there just getting those just getting pounded, literally pounded. as you say, unanswered shots and it was just you know, just watching it back and you sort of, you sort of just think, God blimey, like what on earth is the rest of it? it was it's sort of he goes to jump in and he goes, no, no, I think, I think he's going to come back. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, so hesitant, it's not even funny. And it, I mean, at times you just you sort of hope that Jake Lamar, I mean, it, it describes him as a person in general, not just this one fight alone, how he just doesn't go down. It was just, that's his true, his true grit and determination. And, and people talk about chins. I mean, how about your legs, man? I mean, he's still standing there. All right, he's leaned up against those, but his legs ain't even buckling. And you if you ever watch Sugar Ray Robinson and when he's nailing people with those right hands, how many people, as you say, does he put away? It's ridiculous. And you're talking tough, tough fellas and, and just shows you just how solid Jake Lamotta was uh, as a fighter. But my God, it's just an absolute beating and should have been stopped a lot earlier. I think it should have been probably stopped the round before, if not the round before that. But it was a time and, and it doesn't make for a, a St. Valentine's Massacre if it, if it didn't go on a bit longer. So, you know, we've got the opportunity to discuss it and watch it back. So that's brilliant. What a tremendous fight. And, and, and what a great character from Jake Lamar. Oh, certainly was. It's That fight, after the fight had actually happened, he was actually attended to in his corner after being helped to his corner for 20 minutes before he could even walk back to the dressing room. Now that in today's age, would be, again, it's an absolute no-no, basically. That guy could have had brain damage. That guy could have mm-hmm. could have essentially died from injuries sustained in the ring at that point because they didn't have that technology to just basically tend him to get scanned for a potential bleed on the brain. He's just just goes to show how much of a granite guy that has. And it also goes to show how much pride can get in the way of a fighter sometimes that he absolutely refused to go down. He, he was never, ever the same after this. Never the same again. He retired three years yeah. later. He never fought for a world title after this. This was his last world title fight where he defended his title for the third time and lost it. And three years later, he retired. He was just never the same again. But I did find a, a funny little quote from him, actually. And in his later life, where he basically said, if the referee had held up another 30 more seconds, Sugar Ray would have collapsed from hitting me. <laughs> That's his defence. <laughs> That's brilliant. So he was an absolute, absolute legend. Absolute legend all the way till the end, Jay Lamar. Absolute yeah. legend, completely. 
so the aftermath for this particular fight then really for for Jake Lamotta as we were talking about just then he never fought for a world title again he then went on to retire three years later after having 106 fights winning 83 losing 19 and drawing four and he retired on April the 14th 1954 after his final fight against Pilligal Core. now for Sugar Ray Robinson it was a different story really a little bit of a sad story to be honest with you because obviously that would be a massive night for him winning that title he would continue to go on and and win and defend the middleweight title and lose it and have great fights with guys like Gene Fulmer and Carmen Basilio and obviously you look at his career and you look at the the aftermath of his career and what it meant for boxing but he ended up going on to fight until 1965 which he was way past his best at this point he did you know going into that final fight in 1965 with Joey Archie he'd had 173 wins 19 losses and six draws on his record at that time with a total amount of fights of of 202 so with 202 fights, his boxing record stands at 202 fights, 175 wins, 108 wins by knockout, 19 losses, 6 draws and 2 no contests on his records. Unbelievable record that. But the reason he fought for so long was because he ended up, some of the stories that we've spoke about on previous episodes, like Joe Lewis for example, he ended up poor in his later life, he ended up having no money because he's just again, he just couldn't help but spend that money and, and he ended up owing money out in taxes and it's all the same and similar stories from that particular era of time where they ended up going on having to fight longer than what they should have done to kind of keep themselves sustained because they owed money to, to, to the IRS in America, to the tax office basically and they ended up having to go on to fight for longer so for Jake LaMotta there was an interesting documentary that's out there called Boxing and the Mafia and in that particular documentary there's a scene of Jake LaMotta actually having to go to court to testify about his involvement in the fixing of the Billy Fox fight when Frankie Carbo was arrested and put on trial and Jake LaMotta absolutely had no qualms about sitting there and saying yeah I was told to fix that fight and he did and for whatever reason they never touched him they never did anything to him they never they never threatened him they never did anything of the sort to his family they just, they just left him be that guy just had no remorse and there was just literally no fucks given from him. That was that was the way he was. He could have been living in fear for the rest of his life, but he never did. So, yeah, interesting documentary to go and check out, which does have a little bit on this particular fight, which is Boxing and the Mafia. Documentary It's probably about a good 15, 20 years old, but it's definitely worth going checking out. But this is a brilliant legendary night. This is one where... It really takes you back to a completely different age and era of boxing when we didn't have all the social media around, the internet, everything like that was around. It was just two guys that were the best at what they did and they went in there and they fought six times and this final one was such a brutal and bloody affair that it was nicknamed the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Yeah, and, and, and going back to Jake, I mean, the fact they fought six times, there's another famous quote that comes out with is that I fought sugar so many times that no wonder I didn't get diabetes. <laughs> That's another cracking line from Jake Lamotta. He's a quite a character. I mean, he lived into his 90s as well. I mean, that's just... <laughs> I mean, the guy's got balls of steel. You know, not only does he... He's just... The granite chin. That's one thing, you know. If you think of Jake Lamotta, you think of the granite chin. You think of just pure will and desire. And as you say, no fights given. The fact that he sat in court and said... didn't personally named Frankie Carbo but he said yes I took I took money to fix this fight from the mafia and that 
you know, it just shows you how they could have quite easily got rid of Mr. Lamotta with shot of heroin like they did with Stanley Liston. After the fight, he fought a lot of heavyweight as well. That's the other thing. I mean, if the three, one thing I noticed, he fights Bob Murphy, Norman Hayes, and Gene Harrison, and then literally fights the three of them again, but beats them. <laughs> and that's basically as, that's, that's about as good as it got for Jake after Sugar Ray. And then after that, as, as you say, he had his last four fights, two wins and two losses. And pretty poor end. Unfortunately, the thing is with Jake is, he just didn't get the opportunity earlier in his career. If he had got the opportunity earlier and he had held a title when he was at his peak, I think you would have probably he would have been considered more of a great middleweight champion rather than although he's considered a great middleweight, just not a champion. He didn't, didn't get the opportunities. And then obviously Sugar Ray Robinson, as you say, it was a sad end for Sugar Ray. And uh, I mean, the one thing we'll I'm um, no doubt is just 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 running through his career after it. I mean, the Randy Turpin fights when he comes over to London on, a, on his second European tour because he needed some challenges and then uh, he travels to Europe and loses back to our very own Randy Turpin. And in the rematch, I'm sure we we could probably do a legendary night on that one, Sean. I know that. And then like fighting guys like Rocky Graziano is, is you know that, what an absolute legend he was. Gene Fulmer, Carmen Basilio. I mean, the list goes on. And it, it, probably after that. I think after that Gene Foreman fight where he won that title, the middleweight title again, he should have called it a day, probably around 1959. But as you say, he did carry on. He just went on and on and on. Fired for peanuts just to pay the tax man. Poor old Walker Smith Jr., as he was his original name, retired in 65. But what a legend for me. I mean, Sugar Ray Robinson will always be my favourite fight of all time. Just I know we don't have the footage at Welterweight. We only have what we're, what, what's sort of given to us, what we read. But looking at him as a middleweight in the footage that you do get, I think he's absolute, just ahead of his time. I think that's what... I think he's, he's iconic in the way he fought. And, you know, you could put him in today's world and he would still beat people. And he'd beat the best. Because that's, that's, that's what makes you great, I think. You know, he's there with his whole... Lewis is about athletics and your Maradonas or Pele's in football. This guy is an absolute genius, one that I'll never get tired of watching. So this was the tale of Sugar Ray Robinson versus Jake LaMotta, the sixth and final fight, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. We hope that you've enjoyed us breaking down a little bit of their careers and this particular fight. If you have... Please go and let us know on social media, on Twitter at Legend Night Pod, or on the Facebook page for BTR Boxing Podcast. If you've not already subscribed to the Legendary Nights Podcast, you can do so by checking it out on Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, or Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, CastBox, wherever you get your podcasts, we're there. Go and find us, Legendary Nights, go and subscribe to it, and get all the latest episodes of the Legendary Nights series. And we hope you've enjoyed this particular tale of Sugar Ray Robinson versus Jake Lamar. And right now, Thomas Hearns is an open book for Ray Leonard. Backs up against the ropes. This is one of the most unusual calls by a referee in the history of the sport. The first loss, a tremendous victory. Leonard fighting off the ropes. It happened. It happened. Number cut by Douglas. Down goes Tyson. in right hand shot. Podcast Network.